From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. A little bonus for you while we're on our podcast hiatus, the recording of our live Q&A event held at Edinburgh's Signet Library on Thursday the 25th of May. The panel, hosted by football writer Daniel Gray, featured Jonathan Wilson, Jonathan Liu and Jonathan Northcroft. Welcome along to tonight's Blizzard event here in the Signet Library for the second year in a row. My name's Daniel Gray, writer, broadcaster and general gobshite for hire. Um, They were very kind to me this year because I'm so terrible at remembering names that they agreed all panellists would be called Jonathan, which was a tremendous thing on behalf of the Signet. With me tonight for tonight's event are Jonathan Wilson over here, the founder and editor of Blizzard, the author of... Eight books so far, most recently Angels with Dirty Faces about Argentinian football and of course a writer for The Guardian, Sports Illustrated, among others. Next to him is Jonathan Northcroft. Jonathan is football correspondent of The Times, a broadcaster on Five Live and Sky Sports and his most recent book, Fearless, on Leicester's title win, if you remember that. And immediately next to me is Jonathan Lewis, columnist and feature writer for The Telegraph, former young sports writer of the year. Does that mean you're not young anymore? (laughs) and of course a Blizzard writer. This evening I'll ask the three of them a few questions, we'll have a few questions from social media, but I'd like to come to the audience fairly early on and get some of your questions. We'll take a half-time break as well so you can get back to that bar. I should thank you as well for coming along when there are other attractions this evening, such as sitting in the park with some cans. Or is it just me? Um, Lads, we are the morning after the night before of the Europa Cup final, a couple of you were there, or all of you were there, in fact. I, I thought, so you weren't there, sorry. I've, I, you were in the pub, that's good. Let's talk about the pub instead. Um, overall, a good season for Man United, then. Does that suddenly make it a good season? I think, weirdly, it, it does. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd normally be very reluctant to say one game defines a season. Um, normally, I think you should try and look at the process rather than just the results. Um, and you know it, it was United's 64th game, so why why are we prioritising that one? But I think if you play football as Mourinho does, if you are so pragmatic and so results driven, then it does become about results. Because had they lost last night, what would they have actually have had? You know, they wouldn't have had a Champions League place. They'd, okay, they had a League Cup, but I think United feel they're almost a bit above that. And they certainly wouldn't have had many great memories to reflect on. They wouldn't have been able to sort of think, oh, yeah, there's that fantastic passage of play in that game, or, you know, there's great hope for the future based in, you know, that match where we played brilliantly against whoever. So, you know, in, in a sort of utilitarian ends justifies the means, I think they, they really did need to win that. And had they lost it, had they not been in the Champions League next season, then I think recruiting players would have been that little bit harder. I mean, obviously, United still has a cachet, obviously, they still have money. Um, you know, the financial uh, shortfall that not being in the Champions League would have brought about, you know, they, they can handle. But you know, when you heard Antoine Gresman saying you know, he thinks it's a 6 out of 10 chance he'll beat United next season, I think one of those other four is, are they in the Champions League? So, tick, yes, they are. So, you know, players like Gresman, I think, become a little bit closer to United. And so, the, the obstacles to next season's development have, have been taken away. So, it hasn't been a great season. It's not going to be a season they remember as you know one of the greatest in their history. But it, it might, in time, seem a very significant season. In the style of um, University Challenge, Northcroft, Edinburgh, uh, Mourinho redeemed on the up again, back where he was. 
Well, I, su I suppose just about, I mean, I, I agree with John's point about uh, Mourinho's the ultimate pragmatist and there's a, a pragmatist's conclusion to this pretty dreadful season for Manchester United, which is getting into the Champions League. I mean, I, I'm quite conflicted on this point because I've seen quite a lot of United. They've been a pretty grim watch for most of the most of the time. I think they had the most, you know, the least meaningful and memorable 25-game unbeaten run in, in football history, probably. Um, to finish 24, was it 27 points behind the league, the league winners? That to me is not Manchester United. I think Manchester United have lost their identity a little bit. They've lost their way as a football club slightly. Um, and part of that's not been an inability to understand exactly what their identity should be. I think when Ferguson left, and that coincided also with David Gill going and Ed Woodward taking over, the club as a whole, I think, has lost sight of what Manchester United was. Now, for me, Manchester United should always be about attacking football as well. Um, and a certain fun, and, and I think fun has been conspicuously lacking in, in the Jose Mourinho reign so far. Um, that said, he's got away with it. He's in the Champions League. He's got his two trophies, not three. He's got his two trophies. Um, and he can say the end justifies the means. But I would, I would say it's only you know, a pass mark. It's a six or seven out of ten season at best. And it was interesting putting this point on Twitter earlier. There's such a huge difference of opinion between people who hate Manchester United and City fans in particular um, thinking that there's this media narrative, this media agenda to portray Mourinho as, as a winner at all times and that we shouldn't be celebrating this in any way. But then you've got Manchester United fans going completely the other way and trying to claim that, you know, except for Chelsea, they've had the best season of all. And I think you know, Spurs would, would certainly have a season where they, they connected with their supporters and, and enjoyed themselves a lot more in a way that Manchester United didn't. But what, what did impress me about the game last night was that they did save one of their better performances for the end when it counted, and, and that is Jose Mourinho all over. So um, he's got away with it. Jonathan Liu, was the over over the course of the season was the hoped for Pep Jose rivalry? Did that really become be anything like you in the media wanted it to be? Well, yeah, it, it was kind of billed as this um this, this season of the super managers, and I think you you, you could say that Klopp's met expectations. Guardiola, I think, has fallen short of them. I think City were were pretty big favourites to win the title before, and and I, and I think it's it's a measure of how far the expectations have dropped at United that they're now trying to spin a sixth place Premier League finish, I think 24 points behind Chelsea as, you know, an incredibly successful season. I mean, every season there's, I think there's at least three, probably four clubs where if you don't win the title, it's not been a successful season. And I think United have had one of those sort of seasons where it's been a very poor season that's been lent of the near of respectability by the fact that they happen to have won a trophy and fallen out at the end of it. Northcroft. Are we... Um... Are we at the end of this cult of the manager? Has it been totally overhyped? Has that, you know, has that, has that, that period come to, to come to a stop now? I'd like to think it's been tempered a little bit by the, the events of this season. I'm, I'm afraid when you've got a self-publicist of Mourinho's scale, then you know, he'll keep his own cult of the manager going. Um, and if you speak to Manchester City fans, they probably wouldn't agree that, that it's been a bad season for them because they're still besotted with having Pep Guardiola. I mean, I, I cover Liverpool quite a lot and, you know, I'm a fan of Jurgen Klopp, but, but then when I speak to Liverpool fans who think he's, he's a messiah, then, then I have problems with that because, to me, he hasn't proved that he's, he's, he's equal of the managers of the, of the past yet. 
but it was nice to see the two top managers in the league um, being managers who, who rather than projecting themselves, just you know, and rather than buying players or coming out with with a philosophy in particular, um, just got on with finding coaching solutions and and, and rolling their sleeves up. Um, but uh, you then go lower down the league. You look at Marco Silva, the hype surrounding him, just because he's young, Portuguese, good-looking, and, and, and looks right in a suit. I think we've, us as a media probably are as guilty as anything, and we've got a little bit of a way to go before we, we maybe get back to reality as far as managers are concerned. And Wilson, University of Roker Park. <laughs> um, your, your own feelings with that? I mean, no one got that excited about Dave Bassett and people like that back in the day just because they had worse clothes, basically. It's all just based on clothes, isn't it? Well... I mean, I, I do wonder if it's a particularly British obsession with managers um, that... Uh, I, I, I don't know why. I, I was reading your notes, actually. This is why I thought of this. But there's, there's the age of lots of Celtic players down there. Um, and, and so I was thinking about um, their game against Racing uh, in 67. I'm not going to go on about that now. But the longest-serving Racing manager of all time had the job for four years and three months. The most successful, longest serving of all time, four years and three months. Now, you can't do anything in four years and three months. So the Argentinian notion of, of uh, what a manager is is very, very different to ours. Yeah, I think we still have this, this image of uh, you know, Jock Steen or a, a Ferguson or, or a Brian Clough or a, or a Shankly, somebody who goes in and builds the club from the bottom up. Um, and and I, I guess that, that took hold. We... Certainly in England, we had a uh, a cast of very charismatic managers. So, uh, Busby, Shankly, Revy, Clough. Just as football becomes a mass television event. And so, the, the manager interview, the manager press conference, then becomes part of the, of the soap opera. And I, I think other countries, you know, things just developed in a different way, that the manager was, was actually just a coach, and the person who did the... The, 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 the construction of a club, the, the building of a training ground, the signing of players, they were, you know, they were directors. Um, so I think the cult of the manager has a real... You know, Britain is a very fertile ground for that. And then because the Premier League is so rich, it is able to, to bring in the most glamorous, most exciting managers. And so, you know, of course, we talked about the, the, you know, the great race of the great managers because of the top 10, and by top, I mean sort of uh, highest profile managers in the world, probably six of them are in the Premier League. And if Leonard Slutsky turns up next season, you know, okay, you, you probably wouldn't name him in your top ten, but he is this fascinating Russian who kind of adds another strand to that soap opera. Uh, in fact, Rafa's going to be back next season. Um, you know, the managers in, in, in the Premier League are interesting, they are exciting. And, you know, the fact that there is this, this distinction between them, those who espouse a philosophy those who talk about themselves, those, as you say, like Conte and Pochettino, who uh, have just got on with it and are very good at, at developing and promoting players from within. Um, you know, I think that adds to the fascination. I think, if it's, so if I just jump in back in just very quickly, uh, just to jump off from that, I think one thing I found as a, as, as a journalist covering the Premier League that's different to, to this, this, what it's like in Scotland the access to players is, is is pretty minimal in the English Premier League now. It, it certainly got less over the, the 15 years that I've been there. And I think a consequence of that is that increasingly the manager is the only public face we, we see 
from a club speaking on a weekly basis. Um, that's also coincides with the fact that they're very sort of poor leadership of clubs in general. Chairmen tend to be remote now, foreign. We don't even see them half the time. And then chief executives is a real sort of talent dearth in, in English football. So the manager ends up not just being the coach of the team, but almost the, the public face of the of the club. And one thing I did sympathize with Mourinho for um, uh, was cancelling that press conference because he knows that in the because there's a lack of general leadership of Manchester United in the wake of the Manchester bomb, he would have he would have been the one that would have had to speak on behalf of a football club in a city. He, should, he shouldn't have to do that. He's, he, he's a football manager. So I think it's partly the way the Premier League's set up that, that we are so obsessed with how managers come across. And just very briefly to put in context how little access we get, I was talking to a Swedish journalist last night. The start of each season, every Swedish football journalist gets a book with the phone numbers of every registered player, every manager, directors at every club. I mean, that's just, you know, it's just, just unthinkable in, in the Premier League. Jonathan. I've, I've got a theory about, about this. I mean, and to, to illustrate the contrast, if you watch a Spanish league game and see how, how often they, they cut to a, a close-up of the dugout, the manager in the dugout, and it, it's, it's actually very rare. It's maybe sort of you know, three or four times a half, whereas in a big game like City against Liverpool, it will, there will be a camera sort of almost constantly trained on the dugout, and then they'll cut to it at every break in play, sometimes even during play. And my, my theory is that, is that we're kind of obsessed with this idea of, of managerial dictators. We, you know, we love the idea of Shankly and, and Ferguson, and I think part of the reason for that is because we never, as a nation, had actual dictatorship. <laughs> and so, so, it's the, 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 so we're kind of we're kind of craving this this idea of a, of a, of a strong leader, and I think that there's something about the, the, the idea of charismatic leadership, which which maybe there's a void there that, that football is filling. It's like the deep longing of the Russian soul for a strong leader is for a, a strong manager. Yeah, exactly, there's kind of a fascistic element to it. It's <laughs> <laughs> my theory. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. Um, Moving to this country, really, uh, last night, of course, the Ajax team, a young team, and many sourced locally to Amsterdam and, and the Netherlands, brings parallels with, it's impossible not to mention Celtic 67, but Scottish football in 67, generally, beating England 3-2, Kilmarnock getting to the semi-finals of the Fairs Cup, Rangers in the Cup Winners' Cup final. Jonathan, the absolute peak of Scottish football. Do we, do we really, you know, celebrate it? Celtic have been well celebrated, but what about the, that year in general and that era of the game? Uh, I don't think we celebrate it enough uh, as a country, as in Great Britain. I think Scots probably celebrate it enough. I think there's, a, there's probably an ignorant, ignorance south of the border. If you told even knowledgeable English fans that not only did Celtic win the, the European Cup, but one week later Rangers were narrowly beaten in the Cup Winners' Cup, which was... You know the second European trophy at that time, and that you know only I think four of the Lisbon Lions actually played in the in the three-two victory over England. Such was the the sort of pool of talent that Scotland had to choose from. And again, I don't think that's um, that's appreciated. Um, I mean, the reason I've got the, the the ages of Celtic players marked down in 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 that book there was just I was struck by the parallels of seeing Ajax in a European final with a kind of organically grown. Um, sort of <clears throat> self-developed team of young players. I mean, that, that Lisbon Lions team wasn't just a, a team of local guys, but I think five of them were in their very early 20s. So they were at the start of their careers. And, and, and such was the talent that there were people like Dalglish and, and McGrain coming up 
um, behind them. And, and, and as Scotland gets further away from being anything like decent at football, I think maybe we appreciate now what we what we had back then. Whereas I think in England, everyone's stuck very much in the moment, the Premier League being the start of football history and, and, and the modern world being at its best. I don't think the English properly celebrate 66, really. I don't think they understand it. They, they know about Bobby Moore, but they don't really celebrate Alf Ramsey and, 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 and they don't really look at the reasons why England was so good at the time as well. So I think that's, I've got a general grump about us not celebrating the, the, the football's past anyway. And I certainly think that that, that Scottish golden age should be, should be appreciated more. Jonathan, the modern Scottish game, what is the perception generally? Is it, you know, what's your feeling um, among colleagues, among supporters, among friends of yours in, in London? Yeah, well, I, um, I sort of, I kind of grew up in the, I grew up in the early nineties, and I, th I, th I think that was probably the last point at which it was possible to, to to live in England and see Scottish football almost as an equal partner. I mean, these days I think you still get the the Scottish football results on the, on the classified, and I think if you're a kid these days, you think who, who are all these teams? But I think that that's a, a legacy of the fact that the Premier League does take up so much attention, and I think if you if you asked. You know, I'm 31, but if you, if you ask, you know, 18, 19 year old kids these days, they probably struggle to to name more than half a dozen Scottish teams, and and I think that that's partly a byproduct of there's there's not so many Scottish players coming through and playing in the Premier League, but also in, in the 90s, the Scottish League was it was you know of an equal standard at least to to the Premier League, and I, I just think that's not the case anymore. Jonathan Wilson, do you think the in Scotland we should stop comparing? with England, as often happens, and celebrate what's good about this. We're never going to compete financially anymore. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the gulf is so vast now that, that the comparison is, is only going to make people miserable. I mean, I, I, yeah, it's interesting that, that, that you, Jonathan, um, say that early... I mean, I, I guess you're right, early now, it was uh, roughly equal. But I, mean, I remember... I mean, I'm, I'm nine years older than you, but I remember... I mean, I, I guess maybe growing up in Sunderland where there is obviously a lot of Scottish influence. I think you know, around about a third of the teachers in my school were Scottish. Um, maybe there is a, a greater connection there than there is further south. But I remember watching cup finals in the early 80s. And you know, at half-time, the BBC would, would show you the goals from the Scottish cup final. And so that was you know, when, when Aberdeen got to the, the final three years in a row. And I sort of felt slightly cheated. that There was me having to watch QPR and Brighton. <laughs> And Watford, and yeah, you know, there was a sense that the real football was Aberdeen was. playing Rangers and Celtic, uh, which I'm, yeah, I'm sure you'd agree with. Um, and then, yeah, I guess the early '90s, it's, it's sort of the, the legacy of a, the Heysel ban. The, obviously, you know, a number of very good English players uh, came north. So, I mean, yeah, but it's it not, not just a Scottish issue. The fact that golf is so big now, you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons why. Um, so many of us wrote these sort of glowing pieces about Ajax because it, it is exciting to see a team like that come through again. And there's sort of a there's an inbuilt sadness about it, an inbuilt poignancy about that Ajax side because you know it's not going to be there. Well, it might be there next season, but the year after it won't be. So I, mean, I, I was um, just, by, just by chance I was I, I was in Amsterdam in 2004 and I went to an Ajax v Feyenoord game and that that Ajax team was ridiculous. They had Zlatan and Mido up front. They had Andy van der Meijer on, on the right, Stephen Pino on the left, Rafa van der Vaart in the middle. Um, Wesley Schneider was in that squad. Uh, Thomas Galashek, Maxwell, 
It's a, it's a Champions League winning team. They won nothing because they got sold off after a year. Uh, and, and that's you know, that's the reality. I mean, that's why Ajax moved away from the developing their own talent model uh, and why Cruyff felt the need to drag them back sort of 2010, 2011. Um, but you, you understand why you know, youth development is, is not a... It's not a consistent process. You'll have good generations and weaker generations. And you can understand why a team like Ajax just sort of thinks, why are we even bothering that? Even a good generation, it lasts for two years and then they're gone. Uh, and I think that is it. I don't, know, I mean, I don't think there's a, a solution. I mean, you need a complete overhaul of the entire economic system of Europe, not just football, to, to try and rectify that. And I think it is very sad that essentially four countries, maybe even three countries, have a chance of winning the Champions League. Jonathan Northcroft, is there a bit of hope for Scotland in that, though? Because if we're going to hopefully go towards that pattern of youth development, Scotland can't compete financially, but it should be able to find players still and coach players. No, that, that, that's been my view for quite a long time, that Scotland, I, I think the biggest mistake Scottish football made, and this happened in, in just towards the end of my time here before I went down to England as a reporter, was it tried to copy England. It saw the English Premier League club signing foreign players, um, the sort of glitz and glamour of all of that, and, and it tried to sort of be a Premier League light. Now, my club, Aberdeen, were making ridiculous signings, like, you know, Ilian Kiriakov, oh, fantastic, you know, he played for Bulgaria in the World Cup, but reality was he was 32, you know, couldn't run and spent all his time in the casino, and, and it was, you know, things like that just broke Aberdeen. We, we were left in debt. I think the same thing happened to... To Hearts, obviously, um, it, it happened to a number of clubs. I saw Walter Smith um, a couple of nights ago at a dinner, and he said exactly that. He said, "Scotland, all Scotland has done has made the same mistakes as England, but it, it basically hasn't had the the money to get away with it. it hasn't had the money to to sort of fix it." So, coming back to youth development, I think for a long time it's been obvious to me that that's the only way forward for Scotland. The only way to compete, if you want world class players in this country, we have to grow them ourselves because we can't buy them. Um, and, we, and we have to just accept, as I think Ajax have to accept your point, Jonathan, that the most you're going to get out of these players is a couple of years. But you've got to hope that you can sell to a group of players, stay with us for, for you know maybe two seasons, and then you'll get your move down to England or, or whatever, which is what Monaco, I think, are, are, are trying to do with the group of players that they've got in France. Um, you can't underestimate how much money plays a part in, in the disparities. Um, I remember being told 15 years ago now by Dick Campbell, when Dick Campbell was the, the, the Dunfermline manager. Dunfermline had just lost out to a team in the English conference for a player. I can't remember who the player was, but they were trumped on wages by a non-league team. And that was when Dunfermline, I think, were top six in the Scottish Premiership. Um, and that gap has only grown. You've only got to look at the average wages in Scotland to compare them to um, even below the conference now. You know, even sixth or seventh tier English clubs, some of them are paying wages that are equivalent to the sort of bottom four or five in the, in the, in the Scottish Premiership. So you got to, Scotland's got to get away from break the addiction to signings and money. And I think it is starting to happen. I think I can see players beginning to come through and, and, and just hope that we can do more of that and we can just keep more of them together at the same time because that's the key, it's keeping a group together at the same time at a club. There's no point doing one or two and then disappearing off. Um, Jonathan? I mean, I mean, no, it's an interesting point about, about youth development, which is you know very much the Ajax model, but it's, it's kind of interesting to consider what 
what might happen if a, a generation as good as the 67 team came up these days. And the reality is they'd probably be picked apart before they even got to got to first team age. You know, a couple, you know, a couple of the good ones will be, you know, they, they'd sign for Barcelona or Bayern Munich by the time they were 15. One of them would be, you know, in the Chelsea Academy and probably back on loan at Celtic. Um, you'd have, you know, one of them at Nottingham Forest, few of them, few of them in, in Championship Academies. And it's just really hard to, to keep a to keep a team together, even even a team of kids. I'm going to come for audience questions in a second, but first of all, something from the murky and dark world of social media. Hello, friend. Uh, the question on Twitter for the panel is, what relatively minor thing in football annoys you a disproportionately large amount? Jonathan Wilson, is there anything at all? It's all great, isn't it? I'm slightly annoyed you came to me first, as if I'm the, the biggest ranter on the panel. Um, I, I, yeah, okay, well, something that does annoy me uh, is... Uh, injury time at the end of games that you know the, the, the board goes up saying three minutes or four minutes or five minutes and people don't seem to understand managers particularly don't seem to understand that that's a minimum so, so if the referee has decided okay there are four minutes and 57 seconds of injury time to be played our board's still going to say four minutes and then if injury time accrues during injury time that's added on to that and yet you know that if a goal would be scored on the 95th minute the manager would go mad about it. So I, actually, I'd, I'd go the whole hog. I'd, I'd make football two halves of half an hour each, and I'd stop the watch every time the ball goes out of play. And um, I'd have somebody off the pitch keeping, keeping time. And when the, when the half hour's up, the hooter goes or the whistle goes, and then the next time the ball goes out of play, that's half over. Can I just point out the problem with that, with stopping the clock? Um, no. Very quickly, right? It's what TV executives have been wanting for, for years. Like 45 minutes of unbroken football that you can't put an ad break in there if you stop the clock for how long before you get timeout, before you get tactical, you know, substitute, you know ad breaks. Okay, but I'll, I'll come back. And one of the reasons we'd never get enough injury time is because TV producers hate the notion of a, of a half going on 52 or 53 minutes. If they want it done, so they can get their adverts on. Whereas this says, you know, we will actually have half an hour of play time. And if you have... If you have a, it's a slippery slope, but if you had, say, a 20-second ad break in the middle of that, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Jonathan Liu, your pet peeve. Um, Not really a pet peeve. I, well, I mean, I've got about half a dozen. But when commentators say he's got to make the keeper work there. (laughs) I mean, so there's there's this um, this, this idea that a shot on target is the only shot that counts. And, and, you know, a, a kind of a, a weak shot that rolls in towards the centre of the goal and is comfortably saved by the keeper is somehow morally superior to, to a, 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 curling, a curling shot that, that just beats the... But, you know, it's, 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 it's bollocks. <laughs> Mr Northcroft. I was just hearing Michael Owen's voice there talk about working the goalkeeper. Um, this kind of sounds counterintuitive, but I, I hate players being polite to supporters um, because... <laughs> Possibly because I grew up in, in this football environment where the, back in the day, certainly, I don't remember much politeness either side between players and fans. But I think mostly because it's, it's so fake. Um, I hate all the messages on Twitter when, you know, the team loses 5-0 and you, you get this, like, um, oh, you know, onward and upwards, next game, thanks for your great support. I mean, rubbish, you've just let the fans down. You shouldn't be, you should be hiding in your house for, for several days. I don't like kissing the badge, obviously. I don't like particularly players even applauding the fans when they, they go off because it's very rarely, um, when you're being substituted, you tend not to have had that good a performance. So it's very rarely 
you're meriting the applause, which you obviously want to get back when you clap the fans, because that's the reason that you you do it. But you've probably been abused by those fans as well for being being rubbish, and yet you're, you're applauding them off. I don't like that, and I think it it's reached it. <laughs> uh, to me, it reached its zenith for me. I was at the Premier League trophy in Hong Kong uh, about five or six years ago, where Chris Foy, the referee, took his shirt off and then he applauded the fans. <laughs> and uh, football's gone. Football gone. The ball was burst at that point. <laughs> oh, can we come for an audience question now? Someone should write a book about fifty delightful things about modern football. <laughs> right at the back, please, Vince. Just wait for the microphone. Thank you. Uh, I've got a question for Jonathan Wilson about Argentina, and in particular the fan culture. I'm, I'm sure you saw the footage about a month ago where the, the Belgrano fan was killed, where the fellow fans thought he was a Tajeres fan. I'm just wondering, how do you solve the problem with the Barra Bravas? And if you do, will it take something unique from the atmosphere of Argentinian football? I mean, I, I think it's, uh, it's an intractable problem. Um, I think the club who, who've dealt with it best are Vélez, uh, but I think Vélez were in a uh, a very unusual situation that they had a former Barra became a president, a guy called uh, Raúl James. Um, if you, you know, if you, if you go on Google, Google image search for Raúl James, Mexico '86, there's there's him. I, I guess probably late twenties, wearing this sort of a t-shirt with cut-off sleeves, massive muscles, and he's punching an England fan during the quarter-final. And uh, it's it's a great picture. But he then reformed. Um, and uh, because he's a very, very, very hard man indeed, he was able to, fight, you know, to, to face down the barriers. And he, you know, he cut off a supply of tickets. He, he stopped them. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I suppose I have, to, I have to explain the background to that. But the barriers are, say they're a hooligan group, doesn't quite explain what they are. They are a hooligan group, but they, they, they also have connections with organized crime. They're often used by politicians as sort of muscle on the streets. Uh, a lot of clubs um, sort of tolerate them and encourage them by giving them uh, kit or clothing. Um, because we're often you know, from very poor backgrounds, so just giving them clothing and food is actually quite a, a big thing in a, in a country where social security maybe isn't as effective as it might be. Um, certainly giving them tickets, which they then sell, or they would have the franchise to sell parking spaces around the ground, for instance. Um, and so when that happens, when the, when the barriers become part of the sort of economic fabric of the club, uh, part of the, the political fabric of of a club president, you know they they're very very hard to, to get rid of. And Gamas was only able to do it because he's a very very tough man. He he was able to say no, and he would literally go down to the gates and chuck them out, and they wouldn't take him on because they were terrified of him. And I, mean, I interviewed Gamas. He's a He's a really, I guess he must be early 70s now, um, very tall. Um, his face is sort of covered in grooves, you know, he's lived, you know. Um, and he was a very good interview, you know, he's, he's talking, he's very open about his past and how he regrets it and, and um, about you know, what he did at Vélez. And he's obviously very smart as well, you know, he's, he was not just a club president who was fighting his own fans, he was buying players sensibly. He recognised um, Carlos Bianchi was a, was a great coach. Uh, so Bianchi had been out of work for two years, and he, he brings him in. He uh, he, he recognised Bielsa's genius before he, he got to Newell's, 
and you know, very nearly appointed him before he appointed Bianchi. So, you know, James was a, was a great president. But yeah, about, I think it was three days after I interviewed him, I met him. It was a very strange thing because he came wearing this kind of long camel coat, so looking like a, you know, a classic kind of old gangster, which is what he is. Uh, by his own admission, that's, that's not libelous. Well, it might be, but let's pretend it's not. Um, you'd know, not me, Jesus. Um, and uh, we met in this, this Starbucks, um, and he, he sat down on this, he just didn't see this muffin on the sofa, and he sat down on this, this muffin, I thought, like, do, I, do I tell him he just sat in a muffin? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I bottled out of it. But anyway, was three days later, I was, in a, I was in another cafe, and they had... Um, you have these terrible. If you think Sky Sports News is bad, you should see the Argentinian 24-hour uh, sports channels, where they have these endless debates about. I mean, I, I, I was I was over there in uh, April, and there was um, there's a debate going on about which club has won, won the most trophies, Boca or River, and it's like it's literally it's a number. That's there's nothing to debate. <laughs> yeah, but you then go, oh, but yeah. Boca won this summer trophy in 1973, so they've actually won yeah 74. Not, um, but you know, so I'm, I'm watching this sort of idly while, while eating my lunch, and suddenly it goes to this sort of news flash, and there's there's Raúl Gámez um, with a bandage on his head, and he's a guy in his early seventies, blood dripping. You know, it's like full Terry Butcher against Sweden, um, you know, face covered in grazes, and my Spanish isn't great, but I slowly sort of piece it together that he'd, he'd been kidnapped. I mean. What a stupid man to kind of like. Who would who would kidnap like a, a former? I, mean, I suppose maybe they thought he had money, but so they they, they carjacked him and kidnapped him, and um, he was in the back seat and his mate was in the passenger seat. So yeah, the, the two there's three kidnappers, one driving, one either side of him on the back seat. And as they went through a, a it was a police uh, speed check thing, and as they went through that, he he sort of elbows the guy next to him, rolls across him, opens the door, and throws himself out the car. And so, so the police you know, chase that car. Though I've, I've just been kidnapped. There's a guy in his early seventies. So what was the question? I, I don't know. know. <laughs> Surrendous, though. <laughs> I'll take another audience question while we think about what that question was. Just behind, behind you, Vincent. There. Um, one, one sort of occasionally mentioned idea for improving Scottish football is to shift it to summer football. Um, a, do you think that would be a good idea? And B, are there any other countries or leagues that you think would be uh, good to borrow ideas from? Jonathan Northcroft, I'll come predictably to you. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was one of the things that was debated years ago. Um, my gut instinct is that, that would, the reason you'd go to summer football would be simply to try and not coincide with the, the English Premier League. Um, and I know there's a practical reason for that, but I, I think that... Scottish football needs to just get out of the mindset of, 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 of somehow being in thrall or, or, or having to be compared or whatever to, to the English Premier League. Um, so I wouldn't like to do something that uh, he just did for that particular reason. I know there's a, there's a weather aspect, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a weather argument to it as well. But in terms of football scheduling, I, I always just believe that you know football is about tradition, it's about having fun, it's an enjoyment, and, and, and we need to stick to the, the schedule that, 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 you know, through 150 years, we've, we've chosen, quite honestly, uh, and you can't guarantee the, the, the weather here, of course. Um, in, in, in terms of, in terms of um, copying in other countries, again, I've thought about this so often, you know, could Scotland be like Norway, could it be like Denmark? Well, not very good, really, uh, in terms of their domestic leagues, their national teams are better, but 
could they, you know, could we be like Belgium? We can't because there's, you know, so much of their football has been powered by fantastic immigrant players and we just don't have that level of immigration in this country. Um, could we be like Balkan countries? I, the, I go around in circles and I think Scottish football's just got to be Scottish football, you know, warts and all, but try and uh, go back to what has made us good in the past. And that goes back to the, the argument about youth development and, and I guess football clubs that are rooted in those communities that we've got. Because one thing that I, I don't think Scotland comes second for is, is you know, ardency and passion for football, even in the great football cities of England. I've lived in Liverpool, you know, spent time in, in, in Newcastle. Um, sorry, John, but, you know, I, 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 I don't think anything compares to Scotland's passion for football. So, you know, there are things that we, we're still very, very good at. We're good at being managers. So surely there's something traditional to work with rather than trying to change things. Okay, another question from the audience, please. Um, right at the back again, Vincent, thank you. Um, we're at a time now where some of the, the larger, the bigger international teams seem to be struggling a fair bit, such as the Netherlands, Argentina, and Scotland, obviously. <laughs> so if there's a World Cup starting tomorrow, who's meeting in the final? Jonathan. France. And France and Brazil. I'd say, depending. I mean, depending on on who's available, who's injured, whatever. But I think I think the the strength and depth that France have is is pretty incredible. I mean, it's it's quite scary if you look at the second team that they could, they could put out or a third team, and um, Brazil, who have you know, been very good in, in in South American qualifying. Why does it keep happening in France every few years? In in what remains not its first sport as such. Why does France keep producing the players so much? We talk talk about these systems and ideas and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's definitely there's, there's a system in place, and I think that they, they, they've definitely kind of uh, they, they revamped the whole thing, you know, in, in, the, in the 90s after after they failed to qualify for the World Cup, and and you know, as Jonathan referred to earlier, there's a there's a big immigrant population, and and it, it seems like there's there's now a, a pathway from from the streets to you know the, the small clubs to the center of centers of excellence and you know it, it, it seems like it, it all it all fits together and you know you, you, you have a conveyor belt of talent and and there's an actual there's an actual pathway to, to get that to you know to, to yeah I mean it's, it's very the French one's very interesting I think there's a few reasons I mean the way sport is organized in 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 sort of French cities is 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 quite interesting you know you, you in particularly in the in the kind of urban, uh, the Banloos, I guess, you, you get these big sporting clubs that aren't just football clubs, but they're, you know, centres of the community that you'll, you'll get basketball, you'll get athletics, you'll, you'll get rugby, you'll get everything happening. And, and a lot, I guess a lot of public funding has gone into them. We, we've never been very good at publicly funding football in this country. Um, so there's a facilities, sort of culture argument. And then there's also, it goes back to development. I mean, Steve Parrish, Crystal Palace chairman told me recently that um, you will now get French clubs coming over to London pretty much with brochures of players. You know, they'll ask for an appointment with him as a Premier League chairman and say, you want to buy someone? You know, and, and, and it's, it's their youth catalogue. Because it's a way of French football, they don't have the biggest gate income. So it's their way of surviving. Is that why he signed up for Dragon's Den? <laughs> <laughs> a way of getting players. Jonathan, well, I, mean, I, think, I think this, this point about youth development is, is absolutely right. I mean, you mentioned Argentina. Their, their failure is very different to the Dutch failure or the, or the, the Scottish failure. 
that you know both Netherlands and Scotland, I'm sure, would, would love a failure that has you losing regularly in major finals. Um, but I think what Argentina did was, you know, between 95 and 2007, in the seven under-20 World Cups, they won five of them. And that was the system that Jose Peckham, who's now the Columbia coach, that he put in place um, and was carried on by Hugo Tocali, uh, which is now gone. And you know, we've seen Argentina struggle in youth tournaments recently. I mean, getting beat 3-0 by England last week. Uh, an England team that then drew 1-1 against Guinea. Um, so, you know, I, I think one of, the, one of the great frustrations of the Argentina senior team at the moment is this recognition that this conveyor belt is not perpetual. It will stop. And if they don't win something soon, that chance is gone. But the problem with youth development is it is not 100% accurate. You cannot guarantee you'll produce good young players. All you can do is put the system in place that if the talent is there, you develop it properly. Uh, and I think... I, mean, I don't think it's just England that has this problem. Uh, I, mean, I can't really speak for Scotland, but certainly in England, there's... Yeah, England comes up with a, with a plan of kind of this is how we're going to develop you know, our kids. And two years later, there's another bad tournament and we scrap that and we start again. Well, it takes years. You know, it takes five years, eight years, ten years. You know, we were talking about Ajax before. They're now reaping the harvest of what was sown in 2011. So it's taken them six years. So I think one of the problems England has had is that um, things went wrong, badly wrong, from a development point of view, when Charles Hughes was, was technical director of the FA in, in the 80s and early 90s, there was this obsession with long ball football. He was a zealot for position maximum opportunity. And you got to the point where people like Stephen Gerrard, Liverpool were trying to keep him away from the FA Centre of Exercise. They felt that would hinder his development. Now, obviously, that's a, a terrible position to be in. That's, that's a preposterous um, bind you've got yourself in. But the, the solution then... The, England tried to find was, well, let's import the Dutch model, let's import the French model, let's import the Spanish model, let's import the German model. And actually something that Jurgen Klopp said when he arrived at Liverpool is that his football, he sees it as a development of Liverpool's football of the late 70s, early 80s. And I think English football sort of lost faith in what it did well, in it, in, you know, lost faith in itself. And again, this, you know, this is what you're saying, that there's no point to sort of taking an off-the-shelf model from another country because it might not fit here. You've got to look at what you do best and you, yeah, you look at how you can improve it. You look at you know, best practice. But you know, with England, you've just got to leave it in place. You just work out a structure, leave it, and see what happens rather than ripping it up every, every couple of years. And a quick sub-question, because we started talking about France there to Jonathan Wilson. Have you ever told um, a French football manager uh, that have, have you ever announced the death of a pop star to a French <laughs> football manager? Has that ever happened to you? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, it was uh, Johannesburg, 2009, Confederations Cup. Uh, I was um, in the Michelangelo Hotel in Santon, um, having a couple of beers. Um, and there's a journalist who, who was then at Bloomberg, a guy called Tarek Panja, who had his, had his laptop open and got a newsflash on his, on his screen to say that... Um, so to say that I, don't know, I don't know why I'm laughing at this bit. This bit's not the funny bit. Uh, to say that Michael Jackson had died. And um, my instinctive reaction was to turn to the table next to me where Gerard Ulio was sitting with some Japanese chairs and go, Gerard, Michael Jackson's dead. <laughs> which he went... <laughs> <laughs> um, but then the very strange thing was, I, I then, I went, I went to, my father said I went to the toilet, I was coming back and passed Christian Carambo, who was sitting at another table, and said, Christian, Michael Jackson's dead. You know, I, was, I was just obsessed with informing the French football world <laughs> of the, the news of this, this celebrity tragedy. 
And uh, Campbell also was apparently not impressed. But then very strangely, when I was here last year, I went out for dinner afterwards, and one of the people I had dinner with had been at Christian Carbo's table. For the gentleman in the front row here, had been in the front row, had been at Carbo's table and had been told by Christian Carbo that night that Michael Jackson was dead. <laughs> Before we end this first half, um, <laughs> in light of the uh, tremendous Jose Mourinho two-man press conference last week, we, I think it's fair to say, as outsider supporters, love to get a glimpse into the world of being a, a press man. What's the oddest press conference you've been at, Jonathan Lou first? Um, well, actually, I'll, I'll, probably, I'll probably actually go outside football for this, because a, a couple of years ago, was it three years ago, I was at the uh, Ryder Cup at Glen Eagles, and that, that is the most, after the Americans lost, uh, it's the most incredible press conference I've been at, because uh, after, after the Ryder Cup, all, all 12 of them are, are sitting there, and, and Phil Mickelson just took the opportunity to just lay into his captain, Tom Watson, who, who was sitting about, about six seats away from him, just going like, the selections were wrong, the preparations were all wrong, he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. And, and, there was, and Tom Watson, because he's an old, you know, he's a, he's a respectable old American gentleman, he's just, you know, he's just sitting there taking it. And um, there, was, there was a real kind of confessional, almost sort of Jeremy Kyle quality to it, where the, the, the whole family's there and they're just airing their dirty laundry and we're just the, we're just the gawping spectators in the front row. Uh, that, that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Northrup. Oh, so, so staying on the French theme, I remember being at David Ginola's signing press conference for Everton. Um, and this was when Everton trained at Belfield, which was one of the old-fashioned sort of training grounds. They never invested much money in infrastructure. So they had a main sort of clubhouse building where people got changed. And then the press stuff happened in, in what was basically a, a sort of mouldy old porter cabin in the car park. And... Poor old David. I, I can't. I don't know who he signed from. I don't think it was Spurs, but you know he was still thought to be a, a catch at the time. Incredibly glamorous man, and there he was standing in this kind of damp porter cabin. And I just remember it had this old sort of coffee machine with the this brown plastic cups. It wasn't you know, yeah, it wasn't modern styrofoam cups. It was the old clicks coffee that never worked, but it stunk of coffee because it you know had never been cleaned and. You could just see David, he brought his agent. His agent wasn't a football agent, really. It was a, it was a lady who was more in the film world and all that kind of stuff. And it was just one of those moments where somebody's career was, you could see on his face, where has it gone wrong? What am I, <laughs> what am I doing here? Um, and sticking with Everton, briefly sticking with Everton, um, I did two interviews around about that era with, with Walter Smith. On both occasions, he took his clothes off in the middle of the interview. Um, <laughs> just... You wouldn't mind if I get changed, son. Um, you know, I'm trying to ask you about Scott Gemmell. And <laughs> he was, you know, off came the tracksuit and off came the top, and he was hopping about in his, in his sort of wife front, you know, trying to put on his suit and all that sort of stuff. So fair enough. But I interviewed him about a year later, and he did exactly the same thing. <laughs> exactly the same thing. And then I spoke to other journalists who, who had a very similar Walter Smith exp experience. Um, and then, in fact, just to go back to Gerard Houlet. Uh, because we were talking about this this beforehand. Um, my sort of equivalent to breaking the Michael Jackson thing was I, I went to Hule's press conference the day after 9-11, because Liverpool had a game that week, and, and there was a big debate as to whether they would play or not. They did decide to play, so Hule had to do a press conference the morning after 9-11, and he'd patently been up all night reading about it, and he spent sort of 15 minutes at this press conference sort of, you know, he was a teacher and you, 
he sometimes did act like a teacher and he just lectured us on the, the sort of steel composition of the of the actual tower structure and it was made of the type of steel that dissolves if it had been made of a different steel things would have been different and they were just these poor local journalists who you know just just wanted to know about groin strains and, and you know whether, whether Diddy Haman was fit so and finally John yeah, I, I had a, a not dissimilar experience to that. Sergei um, Rebrov scored a hat-trick for West Brom against Watford and was wearing an orange armband. This must have been 2004. Wearing an orange armband in support of the Orange Revolution in Kiev. Um, and this was while I was researching my book on Eastern Europe, so I kind of knew what was going on. So having to explain to a load of sort of... The, 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 the press corps that follows West Ham is... They're a very special bunch. Um, and... Uh, yeah, the, explaining the Orange Revolution to them was was not easy. But that wasn't actually what I was going to talk about. The the um, I think the strangest was there was a game at Brentford uh, between Nigeria and Ghana, and um, it was just at the moment when when Nigerian football was sort of having been at that great peak uh, when you know they they won the Olympics and, and you know, it was just as, as that generation was declining and just as this Ghanaian generation was on the way up and uh, Ghana won four one. It was the first time they'd beaten them for I think seventeen or eighteen years. And there was all these rumours that Bertie Votes was about to take over as Nigeria coach, which of course turned into another disaster, as, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, but the, the coach then was August Negwavern, who was a very dignified man. He'd been a centre-back in the early 90s. A you know, lovely footballer, really friendly, engaging man, very eloquent. But the Nigerian press corps is the most hostile, rabid. Uh, you know, if, if you, you see the English pack going after it, uh, uh, yes, Fenya and Ericsson or something. That's sort of a, a hundredth of a Nigerian press pack when it's in in in, you know, in, in, in full flight. Uh, so it was, this, it was a joint press conference. Uh, Claude Loire, the sort of very um, yeah, very experienced, great record in Africa. He was a coach of Ghana. They're sitting in this tiny press room, but it was a freezing cold night as well. So you know, there was a tear and it was bellowing out of steam. The windows were sort of dripping. Everybody sort of wrapped in massive coats. And was this just savagery from Nigerian press, Augusta Negwavern? You know, why did you lose? Why did you get your selection wrong? Why were your tactics so terrible? You know, how can you show your face in Nigeria again? So for 20 minutes, this sort of, you know, Theresa May would have loved it. This sort of, it's fox hunting. It's, it's awful to watch. <laughs> and then, and Claude Duval hasn't been asked a question at all. And then at the end, as, as the, the Brentford press office is sort of thinking, you know, we've got to get them out. We've got to lock up and everything. Uh, and so I said, okay, you know, last question. And Claude Loire steps in and goes, um, just before we go, it is Augustine's birthday day, so if we could all just sing happy birthday. <laughs> and sure enough, these journalists have been ripping him apart, calmly saying happy birthday to Augustine. <laughs> okay, with thoughts of Walter uh, Smith in his pants, we're all going to take a half-time break now and see you shortly. <laughs> 